Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Catholics with Bibles. My name's Ryan Pollock. I'm Chase Kraus. And we are coming at you today live from St. Teresa Catholic Church in Austin, Texas. It is Thursday, August the 26th. Uh, Chase is potty training his children. It's a good time. <laughs> uh, the Pollocks are recovering from COVID. There's a lot of dr- domestic drama in our lives right now, you also, could say. It might not be afternoon for people listening to this. That's true. Uh, Merry whatever time of day say, it is say to good, you. Good day. Good day to you. Good or good day. evening. Or good night. I feel like people listen to podcasts in the morning. That's when I listen to mine, if I'm going to listen to you it. You listen to them at the gym, don't you? Yeah, sometimes, or audio, audio that's books. A, you know, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard, man. <laughs> uh, the gym is my time to dissociate, uh, to turn off my mind and, and only engage my body. But you want to do both at the gym, which, yeah, is, which well, is admirable, for, I think. For me, um, I just get really bored listening to music. And so, um, especially, I don't know. And so like for me, do you have a boring music collection. Apparently I do. Um, and so like, and music doesn't like pump me up. Like it doesn't, ah. it doesn't get me excited. It doesn't like motivate me to try harder. Hmm. Um, this is not how my brain works. And, and part of this is that I used to coach at an orange theory and I've never been in orange theory, but they blast music yeah, like, sure. really loud. And so I think maybe my time there, like kind of just crushed my musical workout soul. I, I did a CrossFit style operation for a little while and uh, I, they were unlike CrossFit in that they didn't encourage injury. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> so we had a good time there. Yeah. It's just, I think, and I think that the blaring music just like desensitized me to like music affecting my mood at all. Like <laughs> I'm, me and Plato don't agree on this point. Like of, mm. uh, his, re- so if you don't know, if you ever read Plato's Republic, you should read it. It's good. Um, but for Plato, the only two types of music that are allowed in the Republic are music that calms your soul or music that prepares you for battle. How else will you become a philosopher King? That's, that's right. The yeah. Do it. yeah. Yeah. I remember actually I, when I took a Plato Republic class at the time, I was super into praise and worship music. Um, and I still like, like praise and worship. It's fine. Um, but uh, I wrote a paper on the defense of contemporary worship music, contemporary music in the liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the priest who taught the class was a Chaldean priest. And the Chaldean rite is very traditional, like very, I mean, their rite didn't change for like 1500 years. Nice. Um, yeah. And uh, for what it's worth, he gave me a 90 on the paper. Um, he said, your logic followed, but I disagreed with your premise. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, that's fine. That's fine. You know, I visited the uh, Maronites for the first time recently, which, They're was, rad. which was a really fun time. Yeah, we yeah. have a little local uh, Maronite parish here in town. So the, the uh, liturgy was a combination of English and Syriac and mm-hmm. Arabic and just really lovely. Yeah, the, really Chaldean, time. the Chaldean rite is there's uh, kind of like two, maybe three different types or, of liturgies you can go to. Um, one is English with uh, their kind of formal mass parts being an Aramaic. Um, and then they actually have a Chaldean Aramaic liturgy as well because um, they still speak Chaldean like in, in Iraq in certain parts. Um, and then I think they had a purely like Aramaic one or something. But always the consecration was always in Aramaic, like in the words Jesus would have actually used. That's that's rad. Yeah. As the awesome. kids are saying Yeah, nowadays. that's right. As the hip as the hip young kids are saying today. Well, uh, all of that talk of other languages brings us to our good uh, segue. To our Hebrew good segue. <laughs> Hebrew word of the day today. And you know, we, we may have to do a couple of words of the day on today's 
episode. But the first one we want to focus on is Elohim, which is a Hebrew word that can be plural or singular, sort of the way that sheep can be plural or singular. You need the context to tell you a little bit more about it. But uh, Psalm 82 is a great example where the Elohim, singular God, takes his stand and his counsel of Elohim, plural, or God. So God, mm-hmm. the most high God, we might say, takes his stand in the counsel of the lesser or lower gods. Yeah, and so this is coming from the light of this series we're currently doing with the, the Unseen Realm uh, by Michael Heiser. Um, and so Ryan and I, we read like his part two, if you will, which is I think like four or five chapters or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, a lot to say on the book. Um, obviously if you're not like reading along with the book, don't feel like you have to, um, we're going to talk a lot about it. Um, but I think, you know, I guess for me, I don't know about you for you, but for a lot of the times when I'm reading his stuff, I'm trying to, um, take the good out of it. But at the same time, it's really hard for me to, um, just cause he's not Catholic, right? He's not a Catholic theologian or biblical scholar, right? He is a, you know, evangelical biblical scholar. And so, I don't know, I think probably like 70% of his conclusions are fine. Like they're okay. They're, they're, they're good. Like whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like the other 30% either, like, I just think are kind of silly. Like they're just kind of dumb. Um, or like, I don't straight up disagree with a lot of what he says. There are some points I'm like, ah, I would say that. Um, but I think it's cool. So like if you just jump in on the show, the reason we're, we're reading this book is, uh, well, there's a lot of reasons, but I think pri- one of the primary reasons is to see, you know, from a non-Catholic perspective, how a non-Catholic approaches these kind of potentially uh, difficult biblical passages, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I find mm-hmm. it interesting. Mm-hmm. We, uh, as Catholics, of course, we shouldn't be afraid to examine anybody's claim about the scripture, really. Right, um, yeah. If somebody's going to be talking about the Bible in public, we ought to be able to uh, hear it and analyze it and take the nutrients from it and get rid of the bad stuff. And so... Um, easier said than done sometimes. Sure. Sometimes <laughs> you just want that sweet, sweet Snickers bar and you don't, you don't much care what happens to you, right? That's right. Um, there's more nutrition in some places than others. Yeah. I, I, he brings up, in addition to Psalm 82, he talks about Psalm 97 and... You probably you probably aren't familiar with the old Baptist hymn uh, "I Exalt Thee," but it talks uh, it, it evokes that Psalm ninety seven there. And had we been reading uh, this book, you know, back to, in, in the uh, the old Baptist summer camp days, we we might have had a, a bit of an enlightenment there. But <laughs> how, does, how does the song go? Um, uh, For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth; thou art exalted above all gods. You know, I think that's I'm pretty sure that's the chorus of the song, which is just taken straight out of sure. the, uh, the psalm here. Um, Baptists liking the these and thous, huh? I, every <laughs> once in a while. A certain strand of them do, for sure. Uh, but yeah, so I think you know, there's a lot of things we could talk about. Um, one of the things that I think is, I don't know, I think it, he talks about decently well, but I think uh, as Catholics we should talk more about and understand, is whenever we read the Old Testament, you're going to stumble across these passages with the phrase sons of God in them. Um, and so this, this idea of, of what does it mean to be a son of God and, and what he does, what Heiser tries to do is try to read this, this term in light of what he is trying to do is objective, be objective, right? What would an Israelite think of this word, you know, at the, the zits that live in the, the, the life of the, the, the times, right? Um, and for, I think for a lot of Catholics, um, we can read what we now know into the text, eisegesis, right? Of like, oh, we know we're all sons of God, as in like, you know, we're adopted sons of God through the 
body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, through the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, but in the Old Testament, when you see sons of God, like that, that jump doesn't work because jets before Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Jesus wasn't around. And so it doesn't work in a strictly historical, critical look at the text, right? right? right. So that's not what the original authors meant at the time, I think it's safe to say. But as Catholics, we have access to the four senses of Scripture, That's which right. our theological tradition has consistently said over and over again, there are different ways to read this grand old book called the Bible. And the first, or the most elementary sense, is the one that Heiser is again going to draw our attention back to. What did the original audience think about this sort of stuff at the time? An attempt to not read later interpretations into it. Catholics are going to say, it's okay to read later interpretations into it right. as long as you keep your senses straight, your four yeah, senses straight. Right. Yeah, and I think, so and for him, um, the sons of God passage in particular, um, and he's looking at this, ter- this term Elohim, right? Um, and he's looking at, uh, oh, there was another word in there um, that I'm totally blanking on at this moment for son of God. Uh, ben, ben El or something like that. Son of God, son of Elohim, Ben Elohim, or something like that. Um, ben is son in Hebrew, Elohim, Lord. Anyway, um, I have a son named Ben. That's how I remember. Hey, that there one. you go. <laughs> um, and so, but anyway, he, the thing that that Heiser does, he's really trying to s- just use the Old Testament itself and see what this idea of son of God can mean. Um, and he he creates this like triptych of like layers of sons of God throughout this section. Um, and on the top of this pyramid, if you will, you have God, like Trinitarian God. Even the Old Testament, we wouldn't say that, but like God. And then he has Elohim, the same word, Elohim, Elohim. But the second Elohim, this plural in this passage of the psalm, is um, he says he calls them lesser divine beings. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the third, the bottom layer, sons of God, is like the human family of God. Um, and so this bottom layer, I don't have a problem. Like, Yes, like metaphorically speaking, even in the Old Testament, you could say I was a, I'm a child of God uh, in a non-literal way. Whereas we would say, it's like, no, like, dude, we're straight up like sons of God through like our baptism. Um, because we're adopted sons of God. Whereas in the Old Testament, at best, it was a metaphor. Like it was but before the covenant happens, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, and so this middle layer is, I guess, what I have problem yeah tell us about being what's the issue yeah so he uses this term lesser divine beings and so um this is to his credit he doesn't have the vocabulary that i want him to have right so within catholic thought catholic tradition philosophical tradition we have this idea of, of the nature of a thing the essence of a thing what it is right um as it is so it acts and so we would say god has a, d- a divine nature like that is what god is i mean and that's going into god's simplicity and all that kind of stuff um but we would not say that angels have a divine being they we don't call angels divine beings because they don't have the divine nature right they you could say they participate in the divine nature to a certain degree like being in the presence of god but we would say they have angelic natures they are they're created they are created yeah. and, and he does say that these are created lesser divine beings mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um and so and it's funny so at one point he he says that um this elohim word gets translated in the Septuagint in the word angelos where we get the word angel but he dismisses it as like oh but they they just didn't know what they were doing and they they mis mistranslated or whatever whereas i think i would argue it's like well we're assuming that these <laughs> 
these Israelites who translated, or these Jews potentially that translated, you know, from the Hebrew to the Greek, they had a really good understanding of what the passage was trying to convey that the Hebrew word just didn't possess, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even the mal- malakak or something like that, right? With the, for the word angel, what's the word for angel? Um, the, the malak Yahweh is the angel of yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. So they had a word for angel, but um, in Greek, it wasn't, they, they chose to use the word for messenger, and you know, uh, angel. And so, and, and so we see in the Septuagint, like clearly the, the translator of the Septuagint knew that, oh, this word, they're, they're tr- what the Hebrew's trying to say is angel. Right. So that's how, that's how they translated it. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he, but he dismisses that right offhand. And so the thing I want him to get to, but he just doesn't because in non-Catholic circles, this idea of essence, nature, it's just not, mm-hmm. not there. Right. right. So that's my one qualm with like that part, because it's like, they're actually not lesser divine beings. They're, they're angelic being like their natures are, are different. Yeah. Well, t- so uh, a Protestant objector here enters the chat. And the Protestant objector says, well, what about in uh, Peter's letter where he says that Christians have become partakers of the divine nature? Like, that sounds a little bit like what Heiser's getting at here. How would you respond to that, to that question? Well, I, and I would say we, are, we do participate in the divine nature, but we, it, but we don't become the divine nature. the difference nature. between, like, sharing and completely possessing. The thing right. For, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, because um, yeah, because that's actually literally how you enter heaven is because you participate in the divine nature of God. Because that is heaven is full participation in the divine nature of God hmm. through the person of Jesus Christ, right? Yes. And so you, but once again, a participation in the nature of a thing does not mean you are the thing. I like it. I'm into it. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a uh, prof- uh, professor of liturgy once upon a time, Nathan Jennings, who I think is still here teaching in Austin at the Episcopal Episcopalian Seminary here, but uh, he said once upon a time, and I'll never forget this, he said that Christianity can be thought of broadly as an Elohim replacement project. <laughs> that is that is the lesser gods that rebelled against the Most High God. Uh, these two families that Heiser talks about, oh, God desires that they all be one, right? Mm. And, and so in an ideal world, uh, the greater Elohim would not have rebelled against God, and you wouldn't have these uh, accusatory roles being taken up against humanity and things like that. So um, when you combine that with the later theology of the New Testament and Peter talking about Christians becoming partakers of the divine nature, uh, you see God trying to join the realms again, you know, to right. make things on, on earth as they are in heaven, which uh, is kind of the, the story of the Bible in a nutshell. You That's know? right. And so this, like, triptych, like, God, Elohim, Elohim people um, yeah. thing. Uh, I, what I think Heiser does really well is, and this is a section I, I, I've always found interesting, apart from my Heiser's work, is, and I always butcher how to say it, but it's uh, in, in the Middle East, near Israel, we have this really old, uh, basically a pyramid, right? Uh, ziggurat? Right? Ziggurat. Yeah, 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 and yeah. so they're, they're um, it's essentially, for those who don't know, you've probably seen it like in a history book somewhere. It looks like um, almost like a ghetto pyramid. Like, um, or it looks actually closer to the, like the Mexican uh, pyramids, like in Mexico, right? Yeah, uh, um, the, the Aztec Yeah, stuff. yeah. So it's not a true, not a pure pyramid with like the perfectly straight lines like in Egypt or something like that. It's like a giant staircase. Kind of, yeah, yeah. And so, um, and so what's really interesting, Heiser points out, and I, I've always found this interesting, is that um, when they discovered this site in 1926 or something like that, right? Um, they found like a bunch of tablets in this alphabetical language that looks a lot like Hebrew. It's not Hebrew, but it's Dagnab, but it's close. Um, and they found that the, the people that worshiped at this site worshiped two gods that were co-equal, um, which was El and Baal. 
Mm-hmm. Sounds hey, sounds we familiar. know those characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So I think so. Heiser just points out how that that religion influenced potentially Israel, which mm-hmm. is always just really. Mm-hmm. Does that make us nervous that other religions influence the the ancient Israelite and indeed other religions influence Christianity? What should we think about that as as Catholics? Do you think? So when it comes to the Old Testament, I think you you <laughs> you have to just admit that it happened. It, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a debatable thing at this point, right? Like, and it, I don't think it's very surprising. Like, literally, all of the drama of the Old Testament almost was because Israel, you know, cheated on God with other yes. other gods, <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Like uh-huh. Hosea, the entire this book is of Hosea, Hosea. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, I, I think it it happened um, for better or for worse. Definitely, it happened. Um, and with Christianity, though, and I think within Catholicism itself. That is, I think, a danger at this point, though, a little bit. Like, you see, like, these Eastern Buddhist traditions trying to, the prayer traditions trying to influence Catholic meditative practices. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, centering prayer. You heard of yeah. that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so centering prayer is problematic in a lot of ways um, because uh, centering prayer, and if you do centering prayer, sorry if I'm offending you, but I'm telling <laughs> you why it's problematic. Um, uh, so centering prayer, the reason it's problematic is because um, the point of it is you, you choose a word for God. Right, whatever the, your word is for God, if it's Emmanuel, if it's Elohim, if it's Jesus, whatever, and then you you sit sit in a quiet room, presumably, and then you think nothing about of else except for that word, and you don't let any other thoughts or distractions enter your brain. You fight all distract, and you literally just focus on this one word for God. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not how Catholic prayer is supposed to work. Right, we're not supposed to block out everything else right and kind of empty ourselves other than this one idea rather when we pray we're supposed to be open to the promptings of the holy spirit like where is he guiding us what is he trying to help us do and so centering prayer um i think is is been hush hushed a little bit like Mm. as in like it's been quietly dying out because Mm. people are realizing that it's it's a bit problematic and there's an eastern influence there of emptying yourself blocking out distractions which is just not how catholic meditation historically has been taught we should talk sometime about um, pseudo Dionysius and the apophatic tradition. That would yeah, be, that would be really fun. Um, I I think this brings up the interesting issue of descriptiveness versus prescriptiveness in hmm. the Bible here. So when we read in the Bible that uh, the Israelites or the Jewish people or whichever group you can think of borrows or is in some way syncretistic with the surrounding culture, sometimes that's okay. And sometimes it's not, and right. we really we really need the prophets in the Old Testament to tell us well, which is which. And then the other three hundred and some odd laws that are they're there to stop that from happening, yep. like tattoos and all these yep. things. Like that, we can get a tattoo now; it's fine. But back then, you didn't because mm-hmm. it was too much like the other nations. This is really a small commercial for the magisterium here. Because <laughs> you, you, it's almost as if the Lord designed this uh, institution, animated by the Holy Spirit, which could help us adjudicate between these these issues, even unto the modern day. Which is a crazy. It's, it's, it's a great thing to have. Imagine that. Yeah. But you'll hear people making Heiser style complaints about, like the Nicene Creed, for example. Yeah. And they'll say, well, nowhere in the Greek New Testament is God's ousia described as being shared amongst hypostases or persons. That's right. just an idea from Greek philosophy, totally foreign to the New Testament, blah, blah, blah. Um, but Justin Martyr's um, I, I, conception of this is just better. God's logospermaticos, the, the seed of reason, the seed of the word is present throughout creation. And the church, uh, like an animal, St. John Henry Newman says, can go through the world and assimilate the good out of it and, mm-hmm. le- and leave the bad behind. Um, 
all the much more so because it's animated by God's spirit. Yeah. So, but yeah, I think you're right when it comes to the whole, when the old Testament, yeah, prescriptive descriptive, like I think that's almost reason for its credibility. Almost. It's like, the it Bible. is an historical document. Yeah, like, right. like, yeah. like it's, it's, sometimes people, will, historical critics will say, you know, a lot of the Old Testament is, is political propaganda for the Davidide, right? The sure. Da- the Davidic yeah, empire, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, if that's the case, why, why the story of Bathsheba? You know, like why the story of, um, you know, David literally... You think like, they'd snip those bits out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And they don't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that shows that... I mean, what the, but the Bible is not promoting that. Like, it's not saying it's a good thing. Sure. David gets criticized by the prophet Nathan. Right. Like, don't do it. Right. It's just... but. It just happened. Like, is the Canaanite conquest a model for U.S. foreign policy? Right. <laughs> like, if you have to seriously ask that question, it just reveals that you might not know too much about the Majesty. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No. So I think that's important. So, but I think yeah, with this this influence of other of the other religions, it just, it happened. Um, it totally happened. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that God couldn't couldn't use it in some way. And right. Um, and I think. This is when like this idea of uh, divine pedagogy really comes into play with the Old Testament itself, right? Where you can have an idea where God met the people where they're at, and but didn't want them to stay there, mm-hmm. right? For example, even even the understanding of uh, of morality, right? Um, Moses and divorce is a great example. Yeah, right. It, it was an allowance, right, yeah. for the people. Um, but but you know that, and then also you have ideas of. Um, Let's think of uh, total war, right? Once again, that's that's actually a totally another debate, which we should talk about one day, whether God can command genocide, because that's essentially let's, what it is. Let's do a, a just war series. After yeah, this. let's do fun. it. Um, but anyway, so but all these Old Testament ideas that we look back and like, oh, that's not what the church teaches anymore. Like, that's not what Jesus taught. Is that contradictory? It's like, no, it's not contradictory. Rather, it's this, this pedagogical model of God meeting the people where they're at and then leading them closer and closer to the fullness of truth in the person of Jesus Christ. So... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If God's going to act in time, yeah, right. This is something that we might expect. Totally, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you talked a bit there about the uh, the ziggurat and and mountains and and gardens. Um, what what do you think about uh, what do you think about Eden and the tabernacle and the temple and all of that? Yeah, stuff? I the like, realms aligning. I think that stuff is really cool. Yeah, actually, that, that's probably my favorite section so far that I haven't had really any kind of like qualms with of like you know, just like a wishing he would say more or saying things differently. So, um, essentially he, he, he brings up the ziggurat because in ancient Egyptian Mesopotamian religions, um, gods were always on mountains, right? And then mm-hmm. on top of the mountains were always gardens. Yep. Um, and <laughs> that sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, and so, uh, but at the same time, like it, I think intrinsically people know that that this mountain imagery, this, this garden imagery, this, this life, it's life, right? Cause rivers come from the mountains, right? They flow forth from the mountains, which bring life. Right. Um, so I, th- I think that was always, I mean, I think it made sense that other religions thought that way as well. Um, and, uh, one of the things that was cool that he shows is that, uh, the point of Eden wasn't to stay in Eden. Yeah. Right. Right, right, right. So which, which, uh, maybe on a surface reading of the Bible of Genesis, you might not get. You might think, yeah. man, Adam and Eve really fudged things up. They should have stayed in Eden the whole time. Uh, right. But the idea was that if they were going to be God's image bearers or, or God's representatives in the world, they were going to have to leave and cultivate the rest of the wild earth in, in much the same way that they were supposed to. 
in Eden. And this brings us into the talk about the image of God, which, I mean, if you've been in church for a hot minute, you've heard some sermons about the image of God, and he, he lays out some things that he doesn't think the image means. I think he's being a little reductionistic there, yeah. but he does it for a good reason. One, in this ancient Near Eastern context, to be an image bearer of God is to be God's representative in the world in the way that an idol is an errant representative or a bad representative of God. Like, the reason you can't make an idol of God is one, because it's just dumb to worship statues, right? But two, because th- this is a, like a non-animate thing that in no real sense enacts God's justice and God's peace and love in the world. But we might talk here about his point about uh, the image in terms of rationality or not in terms of abilities, which I thought is, is really helpful, especially mm-hmm. for the pro-life cause. So um, if, you, if you define bearing God's image as any sort of ability, especially a cognitive one like reason, uh, well, then what do you do with um, people who have severe de- dementia or um, infants or people who just, for whatever reason, can't reason sure. well? Um, You'd say it's a fruit of being an image of God, but it's not what defines it. Yeah, yeah, something that grows out of it. Um, my two-year-old is not terribly good at reasoning, <laughs> right? And shame. She, and she might, she might one day argue the same about me. So um, we wouldn't want to put any kind of cognitive... Uh, threshold there in, in, in place of, or, or hurdle or stumbling block in front of the, the image of God. Uh, whatever else it means to be the image of God, at its very base it means to represent God in the world in a particular way. Um, of course, humans are kind of the crown jewel of God's creation here in the, right. in the Eden story. Yeah, no, so, and the thing is, one thing I, I don't hear what we're not saying. We're not saying that it was planned for Adam and Eve to sin and fall from the glory of God. Uh, what Heiser points out, which I think is that you don't have to believe this, like this is not like dogma or anything. I think it's just an interesting way to present it, is that um, they, their, their mission was to be God's image bearers and expand Eden to the rest of the world, right? To, to make the world like unto Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. it's very obvious that Eden was one thing, the world was another thing, right? That's how they got kicked out. Um, and so, you know, for Heiser, his thing was like, yeah, they were supposed to, not eat the fruit as the knowledge of good and evil. And then with that purity of heart, with that being in the image of God, uh, continue to cultivate Eden to the rest of the world. Right. Um, and so, which I think is just, I mean, it's cool. Like I'm cool with that. Um, I think, you know, he had, he has some, uh, once again, philosophical qualms about like his whole like free will, you know, Perfect, well, he, perfection this is, and this all these is, things. Uh, this is Tolkien here, and it's never eisegesis if you quote Tolkien. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he envisions um, the image of God as people who are sub-creators. Uh, this is why the uh, the good guys in the Lord of the Rings are gardeners, right? The hobbits yeah, yeah, are yeah. always taking care of the earth, and the bad guys are always um, big industrialists who are destroying, tearing right. down all the trees, right, and making... Um, the elven rings weren't created to destroy. They're created for knowledge right, and wisdom and growth right, and all right, these right. things. Hey, yeah. that's a Catholic story, y'all. I don't know yeah, if y'all Watch know out. I'm, I'm literally listening, re-listening to The Fellowship right now on my Audible. Oh, man. In the gym this morning, listening to The Fellowship. <laughs> right uh, on. I have an excellent um, free audio book. I can't remember the author's name, right, or, or the reader's name right now, but he, he it's one guy who does all of the voices, like even the lady voices, and it's, it's pretty convincing. Nice. But he he mixes in um, uh, selections of Howard Shore's score from the from the movie, so of course he can't sell it. But I'll have to figure out the name of it and and give it to y'all. That's cool <laughs> that's right. Stuff. Send it out. Um, pro, uh, Ryan and Chase promoting Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> so I guess the, the last kind of I think thing that Job is, yeah talk to us is, about Job. So um, you know Heiser brings up Job 
for a few reasons and, and just for context, uh, if you haven't read the book of Job, go read the book of Job. It's Get on it. Yeah, it's not terrible. Well, I guess it's kind of long, but um, it's not like the longest book of the Bible. Um, but anyway, uh, just as a brief recap, Job starts with Satan approaching God. You have this divine throne room imagery and Satan being like, hey, everybody sucks. I want to go pick on Job because he's actually not that righteous. You're just, you just never did anything mean to him. I'll prove to you that he's not righteous. God allows Satan to go beat up on Job. Job never like shakes his fist at God or anything. Um, and then at the end of it, God's like, Job, you're a rock star. Good job. Here's all your stuff back in abundance, and here's some more kids. Mm -hmm. um, that's the shortest version of Job you could probably Sorry say. Sorry about the first round of kids. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, they're all dead now. Um, but uh, but anything. So he he brings up Job for a few things, um, and the first thing he says, which I, mean, I guess well, let's start with his view of Job. I, he doesn't say it explicitly, Ryan. Correct me if if you read something different, but I feel like he views Job as a literal, like, event. I, I think he's okay with Job being a parable or a myth, um, but he knows his audience, and he knows yeah. that they're not going to go for something yeah. like that. Yeah, because within Catholic thought, it's almost, I mean, within Catholic biblical thought, it's almost taken as self-evident that Job is not a literal event. It, it bears all of the marks of an ancient hero story in right. this way. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's arguably the oldest book of the Old Testament, or at yes, least one of them. right. Um, and so... That's that's the first thing, and and that kind of potentially leads him to this weird idea, uh, and this goes back to the Elohim Elohim thing, right? Where he calls it uh, Satan the Satan as an a, an accuser of the divine courtroom, um, and a comment that I just didn't sit right with me is Heiser said that Satan wasn't acting contrary to God, but rather he was doing what God wanted and accusing Job, hmm. um, and when I read that, I was just like, hold on a quick second. That's a weird way to read this book. Um, but the reason he asks is like, well, then how did Satan get in the courtroom, right? Because it is this divine courtroom kind of imagery of Job. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and so I just, I didn't, it didn't sit right with me um, because I think, I think most people when they read Job, it's pretty obvious that Satan, Satanas, the accuser is not a good guy. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that God is not like, you know, saying, yes, go torture this guy. Well, uh, we can bring out a little more nuance to it and say that what's what's bad about the Satan, what's bad about the accuser, the prosecutor here, is that he's bringing false charges. Right. So his job in and of itself to be the prosecutor in the divine courtroom is not in and of itself bad, um, but it's bad that he was wrong about Job. And indeed, all of Job's friends are wrong about Job. And the only one who really understands Job is... Um, it's probably God yeah, right. <laughs> in the story. He's yeah. the only one who's, who sees him through all the way to the end. Um, so if you have this imagery in the ancient Near East of the divine courtroom where there's the most high God and then there are uh, lesser gods who do his bidding or argue with him or something like that, Satan, the, the Satan character uh, is playing that role in the Job story. But I think the error that the, that the Satan character makes is that he's 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 just wrong. He's yeah. he's, he's brings false witness against Job. Right. And and once again I think this is this can be divine pedagogy, right? As in like once again did the ancient Israelites have an understanding of angels and like our, our nine choirs of angels? No, probably not, right? They knew that that God had messengers, right? But they they didn't have a proper understanding of, you know, God, you know, divine nature, angelic nature, all these things, right? Um, or we might say less developed. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think once, but this is going to that divine pedagogy model where God met them where they're at, right? Mm -hmm. So with the authors of these sacred texts, they were writing from what they knew, 
right? They're writing from their understanding. And so they, their human understanding, now God backs up their human understanding, right? With the sacred author uh, affirms, the Holy Spirit affirms, right? But then that's a question of what they're affirming. Um, and so once again, I think it's, it's eisegesis or at least poor exegesis to conclude that, the, is, that there were other divine beings, right? That every Israelite then would assume that there are other like gods, right? Because even if they did, I don't think that then should overly influence how we now read it, knowing that they're not other gods, right? So I think in his, in Heiser's effort to help us read the text like it was meant to be written, Mm -hmm. he's Mm -hmm. missing, he's missing the mark, right? Because just because they had one understanding, which they wrote in order, they reflected that understanding. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean now we have to read it like that because it's, we have more knowledge, like, you know, and so I think there's value in understanding that they believe this, but I don't think it should, we should force us to read it this way. Well, the question is, what does the church teach, right? Right. So, yeah, so yeah. There, there's an ancient Israelite conception of this or that about the, the heavenly places, um, but what does the church teach and what does the book of nature tell us, right? right. So if, if an Israelite believes that there are literally four corners of the earth, I don't. I certainly don't feel obligated to agree with him. You right. know. Yeah. Um, luckily, the church hasn't re- hasn't forced me to do such a thing. Right. Yeah. So that's not something I really worry about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we can't miss the. Uh, we certainly can't miss the forest for the for the trees here. I think is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one little thing I want to nitpick with him over, and it's on page 66 of the book, and this is at the end of a little section here on. Uh, predestination and free will, which um, for your sake, we didn't try to tack on to the end. We'll do that another time. But um, he talks about uh, the ancient Israelite encountering the text of the Old Testament. And he says that he, he being an ancient Israelite, would not have been encumbered by a theological tradition. She would have understood that this is the way God has himself decided to rule over human affairs and how they will work. So, Good old arbitrary God. Well, well um, this whole idea, of, friends, this whole idea, if you're going to read this book, this idea of being cum- encumbered by a theological tradition, we're just not going to agree with Heiser and any, by any stretch of the imagination on this because we don't think, as Catholics, that theological traditions encumber. We recognize that the text of Scripture itself is the product of uh, thousands, hundreds and thousands of years of theological, tradition. theological traditions <laughs> compounded on top of each other and right. preserved, like uh, the church preserving all of these books for us. So, um, you know, we're, we're just not, we're never going to, I don't think we're ever going to be happy with his method here, but we're going to like a lot of his conclusions. Yeah, That's but my, say, like we said in the beginning, I think 70% of his stuff, fine, good. Like right. I think, and I think that if the average um, lay Catholic or Christian could get a lot out of it, right? And sure. open their eyes to a lot of these nuances of scripture that you don't see with just mm-hmm. English translations. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just the, the method, the way he gets about that, the, you know, I think I said this last week, one of my biggest pet peeves is he's just thinking he's original on a lot of these methods and ideas. And I'm like, nah, dude, like, <laughs> <laughs> like you gotta, you gotta check yourself by about three or 400 years in some of these. Well, um, if you're the one that descends into Plato's cave with a flashlight, you are the only one with the flashlight, right? And everyone's true. like, this dude, this dude's awesome. Yeah. Like, we the, love flashlights. That's Look right. at this guy discovered <laughs> flashlights. You know, he's wonderful. Yeah. Um, um <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. So yeah. So next week we'll, we'll dive into, um, the next section of, this works. So once again, we're going through this series on the unseen realm by Michael Heiser, um, which is, if you want to get it, cool, like go for it. Um, next section, we're talking about the divine transgressions. That's the label of the, of the sections.
So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see how that goes. So anyway, thanks for joining us with Catholics and Bibles. My name is Chase. I'm Ryan. And we'll see y'all next time. Adios. Peace. All right, y'all. Once again, thank you so much for joining us on our show today. Uh, glad to have Ryan back in the studio, which is my office. Um, and so we'll hope you're enjoying this series on the Unseen Realm. We'll see you next time on Catholics with Bibles. God bless.